center of the universe. At the border between the light and the dark stands the All-Star Superfan Podcast. Welcome back, one and all, to Bibbo's B-Movies, where every once in a while we here at the All-Star Superfan Podcast wander around the bargain bin back catalogue of superhero and superhero adjacent films that are so bad, they're good, and so good, they're great. This week, we're taking a trip back to the world of 1987, where a past-its-prime cartoon and action figure phenomenon was given the blockbuster treatment by our old friends, Canon Pictures. Yes, it's Masters of the Universe, and joining me as always is Galactic Guardian and resident man at arm's length, it's Alan Burke. Good journey, Alan. Tell me about the loneliness of good He-Man. <laughs> is it equal to the loneliness of evil? Uh, I am so excited to talk about what I called on Twitter earlier on a celluloid pillar of my childhood. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting into Masters of the Universe 1987, which is tangentially linked to Superman 4. So we're not way off, but yeah. Absolutely. And to help us uh, explain that tangential connection, joining us this week once again is a very special returning guest, from Caped Wonder Europe, formerly Supermania 78, it's Martin Lakin. Good journey, Martin. I've been looking for you. <laughs> yes, boys. So good to be back. Thank you ever so much for asking me. Uh, and uh, for one of my favorite, well, my ultimate favorite subject, let's face it. But as you say, this is uh, very well connected to my uh, my first love. So this is going to be, this is just going to be fun to talk about because it's just a, a fun subject. Uh, once again, we'd like to remind you that you can be tuned to our cosmic frequencies by liking us on Facebook and Instagram at All Star Superfan. You can follow us on Twitter at All Star Super Pod. Please rate and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, and get in touch via email at allstarsuperpod at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts, feelings, and interdimensional light displays on all things discussed tonight. I'm really excited to get into this film because for once... I'm the person who knows the least about what we're talking about. So I'm going to hand it right on over to Alan, because this is one of his favorite films. Yeah, this is, well, one of my favorite films is a bit strong, but this is definitely one of the tentpole films that I grew up with in the 1980s. I saw it when it was released on VHS when I was three years of age. Um, I've grown up with it. I watched it regularly as a kid. I loved every part of it. It had the first post credit scene that I had ever seen in my entire life, which we'll get into later on. Um, and yeah, it was just I was I was right there. I was three years of age in 1987 um, and Masters of the Universe was huge in Ireland at the time. It was kind of waning in the United States and um, it had kind of launched around, I think, 82, 83. And it was in a tide around kind of 85, 86. And then it fell off a cliff in 87, kind of just around the time that the film came out, uh, the popularity of the Mattel toys. Um, I was a huge fan of the Filmation cartoon. I had all the toys. The first thing I ever remember owning ever getting as a toy was land shark it was like this land tank that skeletor used to drive around with i got it on my third birthday in 1987 one of my earliest memories um running around my grandmother's house with my cousin and uh, playing he-man and watching this movie and yeah i cannot wait to get into it it is it's it's not a great like i'm not silly about it i don't think it's this on you know this masterpiece of filmmaking uh, but I love it. I think this is a. I think this is a gem. Where Where are you coming from, Martin? In terms of this film? Well, yeah, you have to remember, Jets. I mean, I was so maybe I was thirteen, fourteen when this came out, 
I mean, it's considered to be the the height of cult and the height of camp probably these days. But back then, when it first came out, it was a serious mainstream picture and none of us could wait to see it. Um, because you, from 84 onwards, I think the Filmation cartoon had been... Uh, have been broadcasting. We're obviously huge fans of that, huge fans of the toys. And so this was this was just a, the most natural follow-up in the world. Everybody was looking forward to seeing this. I don't know anybody that uh, was not falling over themselves to, you know, get in there and see this picture. Um, no, none of the, the stigma of canon or anything like that was uh, kind of pertinent at the time. I mean, nobody cared. It was, I mean, that would only surface later, the whole controversy about how the film came about and you know, what it eventually became, but it was just such an exciting time to be around. And it kind of, the timing of it wasn't great because obviously uh, it kind of came at the tail end of what you would call the glut of fantasy films from the mid eighties. Uh, I mean, obviously starting with, with Conan and then you evolved into Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal and Dragon Slayer and all of that kind of stuff. And Krull, that was another one. Um, and that was around 84, 85-ish, tailing into 86. And so that kind of subgenre of the fantasy epic was kind of over by then. Um, and so to have Masters of the Universe show up, I mean, probably the biggest property of the lot, and if they'd have thought about it earlier um, and, you know, had that much time to invest in it, it probably would have been a much better picture. But as it was, it's just a, I don't use the word guilty pleasure because all, all, all pleasure is guilty as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it resonates with me. It, it, it still resonates with me to this day. And recently, I only watched the picture recently just to, just to catch up. And uh, my nine-year-old son uh, was with me watching it. And he, the first thing he said was, Dad, was this before or after Star Wars? And I was like, well, that's interesting because that means you can't tell. That makes that make that means that you know that it, it does seem fairly timeless. But he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about the fact that the attorney, uh, no, Skeletor's troops looked just like. Darth Vader's, well, <laughs> offspring, if you like. I'm trying to think of a better word than that. There's a lot of stuff in this that either looks or sounds an awful lot like other stuff. <laughs> we have to remember, folks, that the tagline of the movie was Star Wars of the 80s. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, well, everybody knows by now that they had such struggles with the with the production um, in, in and of itself. But, you know... Again, when you saw it for the first time, the, the effects and everything else really held up a treat. And, you know, it, it gets a lot of stick. He gets a lot of stick for camp. He gets a lot of stick for performances. He gets a lot of stick for everything. But back then, as a 14-year-old kid, he hit me right between the eyes. And it did. It, it performed miracles, as far as I was concerned, because really, Masters, as it was, the filmation cartoon, wasn't particularly filmic, in my opinion. It was always going to be a struggle to translate Especially stuff like Orco and the whole Prince Adam concept. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't put that before a, a cinema audience and, and get away with it. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how they do that in future. That's another you know topic entirely. Um, but but to to have them go the route that they did, and William Stout, the production designer, has a great deal to do with this, and he was lauded at the time for the difference between the filmation visual aesthetic, if you like versus how it looked on screen to me it looked superb on screen and i think william Stout's production design is the, is the is the ultimate redeeming factor of all of it um because you know you're not gonna you're not gonna have he-man in furry furry briefs on a big screen it's just not gonna work 
And so, you know, to have Skeletor there with strobe lights on his gauntlets and that kind of thing, and them using laser guns and that kind of thing, I loved all that. I thought that was a really, really clever route to take it. So I, I just want to uh, briefly interlude. Uh, I, I have the least amount of nostalgic affection for this because I, I think I saw the last six minutes of it when I was about six or seven, which would have been the perfect age to see the whole film. But if for anyone who's seen it, the last six or seven minutes is basically just Courtney Cox stealing her parents' car keys. <laughs> so it, di it didn't really leave an indelible uh, mark on me as a kid. But when I first properly saw the whole thing, I was 25. So it's not that long ago. And I loved it straight away. I was like, this is as if time travelers went back in time to the 80s to make a film that encapsulates everything that we think of when we think of, you know, goofy Star Wars ripoffs from the 80s. It's got everything, like, obviously, it's a ripoff of Star Wars. You know, there's there's loads of Superman in there, too, with the, the team tune literally just sounds like John Williams' Superman. And then the plot revolving around, you know, Tom Paris having to use his keyboard skills to save the universe. It's just everything about it. And, and I loved, as you said, Martin, you know, it gets a lot of flack. The budget wasn't very high, but the production design is very good. Whenever they're on Eternia, it looks really, really cool. And like people are always saying, oh, well, they're only in Eternia for a few minutes and then the rest of it's, you know, any town USA. There's actually a sizable percentage of the movie where they are on Eternia, I think. And I'm always surprised by that. There's actually more of Eternia than you remember every time you watch this. More Castle Grayskull. Like there's a lot of Castle Grayskull. Like Eternia is basically like two shots of... of uh what 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 is the name of the shoot a lot of Star Trek in the uh, Vasquez Rocks I think outside, uh, yeah, outside yeah, Los, yeah. Los Angeles Rocks, I probably yeah. mispronounced that it's a lot of that um, I think you get two shots of it at one stage they they have a shot of Castle Grayskull in the distance and you can see the troops kind of marching towards it and the next shot they just flip it it's the exact same shot and they just flip it but the studio set for Castle Grayskull is a thing of beauty can I ask you both just speaking as the youngest member of the, of the the crew tonight um in terms of masters of the universe the cartoon and please don't get offended by this do you think it's one of those things where like for me this is this describes power rangers right if if you weren't around when power rangers came out and you weren't the correct age for when it came out you're never going to get into it later in life do you think? Do you feel like the same is true of the Masters of the Universe cartoon, or do you think it is like a timeless cartoon, like Batman the Animated Series, or or one of those? I've watched a lot of the Filmation cartoon over the last two years, and um, because for pure, and I think I spoke about this previously, maybe not on this podcast, maybe on another podcast that I was on, uh, just for pure nostalgia purposes, I put it on for my daughter when she was like two years of age, and she loved it loved it so i ended up getting all the the uh like for her birthday her second birthday last christmas it was all she wanted a castle gray skull she wanted um he-man toy so i got her a, a bucket load of the origins line which are basically re reproductions of the original ladies toys and she absolutely adored it now she's kind of drifted out of it now again but i watched a lot of it and it is it, it is 80s there's a huge amount of nostalgia attached to it for me it is like they are 22 minute toy commercials with a little addendum at the end of a lesson so they don't get in trouble with the parents councils and stuff but as well as that i have to say i think it's a great cartoon paul dini wrote a lot of the episodes 
Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of great writers involved in it. Uh, the voice acting is superb. Alan Oppen- Alan Oppenheimer, Skeletor, um, and you know so many other great. John Irwin is is, is Prince Adam and, and He Man, and I, I think they do a great job. There's they, they do a lot of world building in it. It's very different from the comics. I don't know if you read the original comics from the eighties. It's very different from that. Prince Adam didn't exist in those comics, and the comics were a lot more kind of. Um, uh, like a like a, a straight rip off of um, of Conan and that kind of thing, um, much more kind of barbarian centered than what the filmation cartoon kind of became. This mixture of fantasy and sci fi. I think the film kind of l- leads more into yeah. the sci fi element more so than the fantasy element. Um, but I would highly recommend. It's like another one that I went back to not too long ago that I didn't think had was as good as I remembered was uh, Thundercats. Which was very much of the same kind of ilk as, as Masters of the Universe. Don't tell me you've never seen Thundercats. I've never seen Thundercats, and I've seen oh one episode of Masters of the Universe. It 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 it's so it's so amazing how like a few years in the difference age wise, like and you're, it's completely different worlds. Like I had nothing to do with Power Rangers. I had no interest in it at all. But I was right there in the eighties, man, for Thundercats and He Man and all that stuff before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came came along. But even the you have to you have to remember as well though, like. I, I, maybe I'm only saying this because I grew up in this decade. The cartoons in the '90s were genuinely excellent. Like the, there was no, there's no kind of like you, you don't need to qualify it by saying, "Oh, I grew up with them." Like Animaniacs, the Rugrats, Hey Arnold, like all of these were like genuinely quality cartoons, and yeah, and then all the superhero stuff as well. The, the only stuff I feel hasn't aged that well from the '90s is the Marvel cartoons. Spider Man's okay. X Men's actually not as good as people remember it being. You know, but Batman and Superman are still incredible and all that other stuff, you know. So there was just never, there was never a real impetus to go back. You know, I think, to, I think the, the Filmation series did a lot. They me. did a lot of world building. There's a, they built a nice little kind of base of mythology there in relation to like, you know, He-Man's parents and the relationship between Teela and the Sorceress and Man-at-Arms. There was a big mystery there as to the fact that mm. the Sorceress was actually Teela's mother in, in the Filmation cartoons. Uh, and that she was basically destined to become the next sorceress down the road. Did you watch it originally back in the day, Martin? Did you watch the cartoon a lot? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, it was uh, it was an absolute staple as far as um, we were concerned. One thing that sticks in my mind that I remember about it most is that, and this was fairly commonplace during the eighties, I believe, especially in the US, is that he he man used to used to pop up at the end and give and and give you a kind of a, a moral or some kind of. Uh, some kind of lecture about the, the difference between good and good and evil and how to live your everyday life in accordance to what, what you know, right and wrong, which I, which I think is quite quaint now. Um, I mean, you I mean, you wouldn't be caught dead doing that kind of thing these days because the, you know, everywhere is a, gr- a gray area, but back then it was, it was, I mean, nobody ever kind of took it seriously, but it was just one of those things that, you know, they, they didn't need to do that, especially. So I kind of like that they did. And just like, uh, just like you say, Alan, it was um, there was a great framework there. The film wasn't. I mean, the, the excuse they used for the for the picture was that it wasn't based on the filmation cartoon, so there was no need to kind of carry over the the whole. I mean, the mythos like like Prince Adam and all that kind of thing in Orco that could go by the wayside because it was based on the concept as opposed to the uh, the cartoon. But no matter what, I think the cartoon, the filmation cartoon, will have more longevity than anything else, or any kind of interpretation. I mean, there's been two more since. And we look forward potentially to another live action picture at some point in the future. And I would love to do that. I would love to be part of that to kind of 
made that kind of adaptation because what would you actually do where where would you place it what is your audience for that now i mean you've got you've got to appease that i mean kevin smith has had a, has a, a damn good go at, at trying to uh, take those concepts and update them and and squarely put them in in this day and age and there's a huge debate about whether that's been successful or not um but i i wouldn't i would try not to be influenced by any anything like that and just purely take the source material and make the best of that because it's very very rich i mean all the the grayscale stuff the attorney and stuff all of that is fascinating when you get uh, get deeper into it but you know as it turns out the 87 film didn't accelerate the uh, I, I guess the 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 whole concept forward too much but it it did it did its job which was to be a very entertaining representation of what you'd already seen so it could have been it could have been really junk it could have been unwatchable but it wasn't there is just too many factors going for it as you mentioned out of the, the bill conti score even though it is a you know, <laughs> somewhat somewhat familiar is yeah. you know and there's some superb action sequences there's some great special effects um, and as I mentioned, the production design just gets me every time. It's an absolute joy to watch. I just to bring it back to Superman, and I, I know you'd appreciate this, Martin. My earliest memory of this film is actually seeing the trailer for it on the VHS release of Superman Four. Do you remember that? It had it. Ha- I remember this. It had it had Masters of the Universe. It had Inner Space, and it had uh, Witches uh, Witches of Eastwick. What a great time. What a great time for pictures in general. This is why, you know, this is why I still labour the point because, and to be, you know, to be that, that age, and I'm older than you, fella, so I was kind of, for me, the, the cartoon was the tail end of my kind of interest as far as that went. I drifted off into other stuff not not long after. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the VHS, the video rentals, that whole age of, like, you know, what's coming out next. It, it was never as analytical and as deep as we treat it now because we're more interested in how these things, you know, the genesis of these things and how they were made and that kind of stuff. But back then it was just like, what's out this week? And Masters was just another one of those that, I mean, I remember very well going to the cinema with the whole family to see it. And we were, you know, we were all thrilled coming out of it. We thought it, would, as, as I say, it just met every criteria of, of, of an 80s picture that uh, you could possibly, and just like you say, Robbie, it, it doesn't get any more 80s than this picture. It really doesn't. It's actually just, when I was talking about the VHS, it is the very first thing I ever purchased on eBay. The very first thing was Masters of the Universe on DVD. Um, and I remember getting it posted to my house and just being amazed that it had been released on DVD and it, you could get it delivered to your house over the internet. It blew my mind at the time. <laughs> yeah, there was a long time, actually, as I recall, between the video release. I had it on VHS for the longest time, but there was, seemed to be a very long time before it was transferred to DVD. And I don't think that... I think there's there's Blu-ray now, isn't there? But um, yeah, the, uh, the DVD wasn't particularly better quality than the tape, as I recall. But um, yeah it's really ripe for a kind of a, a proper restoration and uh you know a, a, a proper release i think i mean it's like so many films from that era i mean we, I, I bang on about superman 4 that's my uh, and these these as we know these two pictures are entwined for better or worse um for anybody that didn't know the budget for masters was spiraling out of control and uh Superman 4 wasn't doing any better in canon. And it's, I mean, we have to remember, of course, that even though this quite spectacular output for the time uh, was being financed by a company that was disappearing down the tubes faster than they could uh, write checks to uh, cover expenditure. And so the, the, um, the legend is that 
uh, most of Superman's uh, Fall's budget was written off halfway through production and diverted to Masters of the Universe, which in itself wasn't enough to cover uh, the completion of that picture. And um, the most famous story about the Masters film, as we know, is was it uh, Canon executives walked in mid-shoot while uh, uh, Gary Gardard was on set um, actually trying to get the picture done and told him to stop. I literally, literally told the man to stop what he was doing because this is as far as we go. We're not going to finish this picture. And so he had to finance the rest of it out of his own pocket and complete that last thing. And, he, and they literally came in later that, that day or a couple of days later and, and filmed it, turned down the lights. He came up with the idea that when, when, you know, when the staff and the sword strike each other, that it drains all the power out of the castle. And they, they kind of did this quick shoot. Um, I, I, know, I know that Mattel, it was actually Mattel themselves who came up with the idea of wanting to release a, a film in order to inject interest back into the, the franchise was starting to wane and I think the deal that they had struck was something like that they would come up with 50% uh, Canon would come up with 50% Mattel had to pay the first 50 and then when it came time for Canon to pay theirs they were like fuck no we're not paying you we're not we're not we're not injecting anything into this and Mattel had to kind of come up with almost all of it themselves you know it's um which obviously further put them it was the end of the 80s I think when they pretty much went bankrupt I think wasn't it yeah well what had happened was is that uh the Grayskull set had been struck it was gone it was no more and this I mean even I think the the final uh scene of of uh, Skeletor and uh, He-Man fighting it out against essentially black drapes is um is pretty effective actually i mean it, you know it, it it it's funny how like you know desperation forces the the, the most creativity out of uh out of, out of these people so you know again it's what it's one of these things it's like wow what a, what a what a really interesting effect nobody knew at the time it was done because you know it was made, made out of pocket change nobody had any 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 clue that that was the case but yeah um so yeah, this is uh, this is where we find ourselves in in this day and age now, where we know that these things were just about. I mean, as it turned out, Superman Four was released unfinished. Um, that was a consequence of of, uh, of that uh, that fallout when it came to when it came to that picture. But uh, yeah, at least they managed to get uh, Masters in uh, in such a shape that what he was complete um, and. And days, meaning weeks, months after that, Canon completely uh, evaporated into uh, into thin air. Have you? Sorry to skip ahead now, but have you guys seen the Jean Claude Van Damme film Cyborg? I, I I know what the link is, but I haven't seen it. No, no. I, I I've seen very few Jean Claude Van Damme movies. Maybe Street Fighter and Death Warrant and Double Impact. I think that's about it. Yeah, I haven't seen that many. Bloodsport is very good. Um, Bloodsport is basically what Street Fighter the movie should have been. <laughs> Um, have you seen Cyborg, Martin? I'm assuming you. Of course, yeah, yeah. of course, of course. I mean, this is this is like again. This is another. This was another Sunday night visit to the video store yeah. where we used to come out with these things, and Cyborg was just another. Uh, yeah, it, it's not a, a particularly enduring memory because this is the time now. This was the kind of bridge between. Uh, I think it was New Line that was it in the end that Manachim Golan uh, went oh, along no, with. It, no, was it was, it was new it image. New image. I can't remember. But um, this business about you know the whole sets being built for Masters of the Universe Part Two, as it was back then. Yes. Um, the only genuine piece of evidence that uh, I think it existed. I don't even know if there's a script, but there is a a, a poster. Uh, there was a, a feature. There was a one-page feature in Variety in '88. 
that had uh, that publicized Superman five, uh, a canon production, and Masters of the Universe part two. So they did intend to go ahead and do another one. I, I'm not sure about whether there's a whether that's one of those Hollywood myths, whether those sets were built for Masters two and Laird Hamilton being cast as He Man. It just doesn't seem to hold water for me. But for anyone who doesn't know, yeah, the 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 the, the big. Uh myth the legend surrounding cyborg is that there's a lot of costumes and sets that were designed to be used for masters of the universe 2 and spider-man the movie apparently uh and that they feature in this that, that both of those went under and didn't happen because canon went under so they made this uh forty thousand dollar jean-claude van damme action movie and they they used all the sets and the costumes there and it's 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 one of my favorite and only reasons to watch cyborg with jean-claude van damme is just like looking at particular costumes and particular sets and going i wonder if that's from masters of the universe i wonder if that's from but there's definitely a scene where there's like a new york city cab and it's like a burnt out new york city cab and i'm like maybe that was from spider-man like that's the only thing that's kind of remotely spider-man like in that movie and then there's just all these kind of flashy gaudy kind of you know, '80s fantasy costumes. Any of them could have been in Master of the Universe. And I wonder, was 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 He Man meant to come back to Earth a second time? Was that the the kind of the, the... yeah? So allegedly, the plot was. And bearing in mind that uh, this was this was put in the hands of a director called Albert Pune. Uh, Albert Pune. Albert Pune, and we lost him recently. God bless him. Yes. Um, but uh, at one point, Albert Pune was had the task of bringing Spider-Man, Superman 5, and Masters of the Universe 2 to the screen. All three pictures were in his lap to produce and direct. Um, how that would have gone, I do not know. Um, Spider-Man collapsed under its own weight, I think. Uh, we all know what happened to Masters, just as you describe. Um, I don't know if... if because He-Man was going to be... They they couldn't afford Dolph, I don't think. So this, this, uh, this uh, chap called... Surfer, him. wasn't he? Laird Hamilton, his name was, and uh, he was tied to um, the sequel. And He-Man was apparently going to be, it was going to take place on Earth, just since before. Uh, He-Man was going to be an American football player. Skeletor was going to be the equivalent of Bill Gates or something like that, where he was just some uh, corporate, uh, and that's how he was taking over. He was taking over the world the uh, the old-fashioned way, a bit like a Bond villain, probably. But, um, yeah, it, uh, that's as much as I know. I don't... I, can I remember a script being out there? Maybe. I don't know. But um, it'd be certainly interesting to see what they intended to do with it. None of these projects, incidentally, uh, made it. Uh, the only thing that did hit the screen eventually was the adaptation of Captain America, which uh, Albert did um, a few years later. Did you know, Martin, that there is a comic book adaptation of that movie? Because I only found this out very recently. Is there really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'll, I'll send. I, th- there are scans of it online. And uh, it, it, it came out like two years after the movie. I think I think they may have planned to release it at the time, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But it's interesting because Stan Lee wrote it, which he which he often did in those days. You know, he he just you know jot down a few words in the speech balloons at the last second, and they could say written by Stan Lee that he wrote the Spider Man the movie adaptation as well. So yeah, there 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 is a comic book um, adaptation of the Masters of the Universe film as well. Oh wow, done in the. Yeah, but it's done in the style of the actual comics, like almost like the filmation kind of style, and um, where He Man looks more like he does in the comics. Skeletor has the purple clothes and the yellow skull and stuff. Um, I don't have it; I've never read it, but I have I have read that it's out there somewhere. Apparently, and the the uh, just about that that uh, adaptation, I found out recently that the end uh, or 
I don't know if it's at the end actually, but there is an implication that Eternia, uh, or the the mankind on Eternia, uh, are essentially um, astronauts that were sent from Earth that crashed there, and that's how uh, Eternia evolved into what it what it is or what it was, as you see in the film, which is an interesting angle. And that's that's very similar to the origin of uh, Marleya, um, uh, Prince Adam's mother in the cartoon, in the Filmation cartoon. She's actually an Earth woman who was an astronaut who crash-landed on Eternia and then fell in love with King Randor and uh, had and became the queen. It's very linked in there. See, just look at look this. It's like I'm the Rob of, of this episode. <laughs> um, I'm just laughing every time you say Randor. It's such a funny name. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but yeah. Like his, his dad's name is Randy? Rand- <laughs> King Randy. <laughs> um, so just in relation, let's talk about the casting maybe of the actual film itself. Um, there's, there's one specific uh, actor that I really want to get into because I think it is such an underappreciated performance anybody who's a fan of the film who watches it it's the one performance they walk away from and they're like oh my god he is superb he's one of my favorite villains of any film um especially any kind of franchise movie and that's obviously frank langella's skeletor oh i thought you were going to talk about the guy who plays man at arms no (laughs) no um frank langella's skeletor uh this film does not deserve uh frank langella in it i don't think he he came to play guys and he like i've i've read and i've seen in, in 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 things before that he agreed to do it because his son or his children were such huge fans of of the filmation cartoon and they basically begged him to do it and he wanted to do it for them and he has often been quoted as saying it is his number one most preferred role that he absolutely had the time of his life playing this part um martin what did you what do you think of frank langella's skeletor oh he was he was spellbinding i mean the uh, at first watch at that age he was just uh, it was everything that you you would hope that he would be and more because yeah. he was i mean thank god he got most screen time really because he, he, what i love about him is he, he's just totally exasperated throughout the entire picture because he's trying to get all these minions to do this job for him and they fail at every 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 turn and so by by the end of it where he just gives up and goes to earth himself because if you want something done you do it yourself hey, there's a scene um when he does arrive on earth and he's uh, he's uh, his skiff. I'm going to say it's a skiff, like a Return of the Jedi. Uh, rises. This is a great shot. He's slowly rising behind this rooftop as the as our heroes are, are talking about what they're going to do next. And uh, this enormous fight ensues. And the and the most He-Man moment of all of it is when there's about 28 of Skeletor's troops all piled on top of He-Man, and then he whoops them all off, and it's absolutely magic. And then it's all like, all right, and enough. And then Skeletor says, enough, enough, enough. And then I think Dolph has got this line. I think it's Dolph's only got about 12 lines in the whole picture, but one of them says, uh, I don't want innocent people to die. And at one point, Langella looks like he's reacting to the line rather than um, the script is going, oh, very noble human, <laughs> something like that. He looks like he's criticizing Dolph's delivery as opposed to what he's just said to me. And that makes me laugh every time. And I don't know, yeah, Langella is that intelligent an actor that he could he could make you probably think that both are applicable. Um so yeah he was a joy throughout i have read that it the film kind of became more skeletor focused like a lot of the film is from skeletor's point of view um like you get a lot of like it opens up with skeletor in in you know taking over castle grayskull and we're kind of following it's almost skeletor's story um but i heard that that kind of developed over time due to the uh 
poor performance really of of Dolph that they had issues with Dolph obviously he wasn't a great actor at the time uh, his, he had a lot of issues with his accent and stuff and delivering the lines he had it in his contract that he got uh, three takes at each at e- three passes at, e- at each line and it was just good enough to kind of that they didn't have to dub him over and that as it was going on they kind of added more and more and more to Langella's part and that he was kind of coming up with lines and stuff himself because he's got some fantastic lines like that one I, I read at, at the start it's one of my favorite lines you know when he talks about the loneliness of of, of good and evil and he, the monologue at the end when he's when he's powering up to become that kind of new god Skeletor he has this you know where he's kind of touching the the lightning off his face and he has this big monologue about the power and how it soars through he is superb Dolph is like the ultimate example and I like Dolph longer than this by the way I have no issue with him but he is the ultimate example of the thing I hate which is when people just look at someone and go oh he'd be perfect as Superman like disregarding his acting ability and all that kind of stuff it's just that he looks perfect in the role and that's that's what the ultimate selling point of Dolph in this movie is he just looks like a like he looks like 50 million dollars as He-Man but everything that comes out of his mouth is just I use no other man with you and you mentioned his accent there. Why does He-Man even have to have an American accent? Why can't he have a Danish accent? It's, it, you know, it's, a, it's an alien mystical dimension from space, you know? Which is probably, I mean, so poor um, Chelsea Field and John Cypher would have had to, like, put on Danish accents to match up with what... <laughs> <laughs> which is probably just such an ungodly mess that they just thought... And, and, and indeed, Skeletor seen as he's from Eternia too. But no, um, I think Dolph had a... In the credits, I think there's a speech and drama coach for Dolph. I've read somewhere, and I can't remember if this is this is right, that... Um, that they did ADR on him. They got another, they got a, another actor to do the, to, to all his lines, and he was absolutely superb, and everybody involved in the production loved it. Um, but in the end, contractually, it was just like you say, uh, Alan, it was three passes that he got and uh, he took in the end. Um, my personal choice had the whole thing would have gone on. I think Mark Pillow, the guy that played Nuclear Man, would have been ideal going forward because he, he was, would have been good, actually. He I would have been that. terrific because, not, I mean, you don't really get the... Uh, the gist of in Superman 4 because he's not I mean ironically again he's dubbed but um having heard him speak and having heard him perform he would have been an ideal replacement for Dolph but that's that's a great pull because I was kind of thinking I was wondering about this earlier on and the only kind of person I could kind of come up with in my head was Sam Jones you know Flash Gordon Sam Jones maybe um but I don't know I think I I think Mark Pillow you're 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 closer to the target with Mark Sam Pillow. Jones would have been awesome as well 
um, because again, while we're talking about dubbing, this is the, probably the most uh, infamous case of it in uh, in film history, really, with what happened to Sam. Sam's got a very deep voice, as it turns out, and uh, he would have he probably would have sounded a bit more like Dolph should have sounded in an ideal world. Um, so yeah, he would have been an ideal choice too. He would. Oh God, that was so. It would have been six years after Flash. That would have been uh, would have been absolutely fine. Yeah. I think they should have gone back to the Rocky alumni and just asked Burgess Meredith to play He-Man. <laughs> I think he would have been really good. That got him, Rock. <laughs> I have the power. <laughs> you guys might know. I I I don't know if there's any. Uh, truth to it or not but i i have heard or i have read from other people that i've spoken to that sarah douglas was actually in consideration for the role of um Evelyn, um in lieu of meg foster but that meg that Meg got it um basically down to those incredible eyes that you see in the film those these these sorcerous eyes or these you know witches eyes they're just it's hard to describe how kind of uh, powerful they are in the film um but they really stand out she plays a terrific part, actually. I mean, she there's no there's no kind of sense of um, camp with with her at all. It, she's kind of she's if anybody she's playing it just as straight as Langella. They have a they're really terrific scene actually, where um, it's just them and they're being quite intimate. The Skeletor's on the throne and he's talking to her about why is there, why is there still resistance, and you know he's kind of. He blows it at the end, but he, he, as a character, there's some kind of compassion there. It, it doesn't. It doesn't last. I mean, he throws it straight to the wolves as soon as like uh, the um, the bounty hunters get back, and uh, then he says, "Well, you should go with him because you you dared speak. You know, he dared open your mouth." But right before that point, there's uh, there's a, a touch of humanity there that makes it very interesting. And again, it's all down to Langella's performance with it because you love him one minute, you hate him the next. There's still resistance. The people must know that I am Grayskull. I depend upon you for these things. You know that. The people wait for He-Man. They believe that he will return to lead them. For you to rule completely, he must be destroyed. He-Man, if I kill him, I make him a martyr, a saint. No, I want him broken there's a bit of nuance there it's really interesting and it's almost like he thinks that this is what love is or something like that you know in his twisted way he's being compassionate with her in that moment it is a really interesting bit actually yeah he doesn't he doesn't understand why because he's conquered now and he doesn't understand why everybody doesn't love him and why everybody hasn't welcomed him with open arms into the fact that he's just invaded their uh territory so he, he's kind of bewildered but at the same time he's, he's, his ego is so enormous that it doesn't matter it cancels everything out in the end. I'm, su- I'm surprised Alan hasn't already recited the, the actual best line of the entire film I thought I had and I'm going to do it right now I thought I had it's the bit it's the bit where uh, your man goes you would dare threaten her life and Skeletor just responds I dare anything I am Skeletor it's, it's, it's the best line in any film <laughs> While she remains imprisoned within this field, her powers increase my own. And when the moon reaches its zenith, the great eye will open and all the powers of Skull will be bestowed upon me. Your wondrous sorceress will die. You dare threaten her life? I dare anything! 
I am Skeletor. He is he is fantastic. And uh, just just to your point, Martin, there about how he throws her to the wolves. I like how they can revisit that later on when she abandons him. You know, she sees that the way things are going, and they haven't even started fighting. She just sees that He Man has 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 kind of broken free of his shackles and things she knows from. And I, that's one thing I love about the film. It's not their first battle. You get the impression that this has been going on for years because he says it. Uh, he Man says it to Skeletor. He goes. This is about us. It has always been always about been us. between yeah. us. Yeah. And you yeah, that's that's exactly right. He they just hate each other. You know, like Skeletor just hates He Man with everything he has. And you 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 feel his frustration that he's been trying these all these plans have been failing for years, and finally he, he has the upper hand and he's relishing every moment of it. You know, torturing uh Christina Pickles who who plays the sorceress and you know kind of uh you know um take, not taking the piss out of her but basically you know just kind of mocking her and taunting her and it's he he's so it's just fantastic even if he does have two black velcro strips or two black uh cloth strips for his nose but that's the only other than that I love his costume and his makeup is unbelievable yes indeed yeah again it's all down i mean the whole kind of aesthetic that they that they threw at this picture i think mobius did some designs for it actually jean Jean gerard the uh very famous franchise and that influence is felt um but even though it's completely derivative so much of it was you know especially with the costumes i think all the costumes were terrific he-man's especially was was the best you could have done from that source material, I think to take it and 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 make it kind of you know give him those those big uh, pauldrons and whatnot. But the Skeletors wins out because it's so ornate and it's so kind of beautiful in a way. Um, and again, yeah, I mean Meg Foster, the, she's a she's a living special effect, isn't she, with those uh, those eyes of hers? So you know the the, the way that they took that. 2D animation and then through it at film is I think it's it's most redeeming um, aspect. It's it's incredible to watch. I think I love I I, I read somewhere that the director um, was was taking a lot of inspiration from Jack Kirby and the New Gods and the Fourth World and all that kind of stuff. And once I read that, you kind of can't unsee it. Then there's there's all these little trinkets and gadgets, and you have the cosmic key. Which is very much like something Jack Kirby would have created. It's like it sounds like the Cosmic Cube, anyway. But then you also have all these things that like are kind of reminiscent of the Mother Box in those comics, and the, the whole plot centers around the Cosmic Key being able to open a portal to Eternia, which is kind of like the Boom Tubes in in DC. So that there's all that, and then obviously Skeletor in this is a lot more like Dark Side um, from from those comics than maybe the Skeletor from the cartoon. I would have said. Yeah, he's, he. I always thought of him as kind of an, an amalgamation between Darth Vader and Darkseid. Mm. He's kind of this kind of cross between between the two. But yeah, that's um, the, the 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 just in, in reference to the makeup and everything. He the um, the uh, goons, the the henchmen, Skeletor's henchmen. I I was trying to remember there, Martin. Maybe you might remember. Do you remember kind of when you saw it f- first? That was there any kind of like oh they didn't use characters from the cartoon? Really? I know they used Beastman, but then they kind of you know they they invented kind of Sarad. And then they have uh, Blade in there and stuff. Did, was there kind of like, oh, why don't they have, you know... Um, Manny Faces. Manny, Ma- Where's Manny Faces? Well, Manny Faces is a good guy. <laughs> is he? <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> um, but, you know, they could have had... This, they had so many options there of, of guys to, to, to choose from. But 
they they kind of just kind of invented their own. Do you remember being disappointed with that at the time, or no, not disappointed because again, it was it was clearly so different and so filmic that that you know, I think you know what um, there wasn't even chance to miss Orco either because clearly Gwildor uh, literally took his place. Um, so there was none of that really. I think people were really pleased to see Beastman because he, he was he was really cool because um, his action figure was actually furry if you remember. Um, but yeah, as, as far as the rest of them are like Triclops and Merman and all that kind of stuff, he, again he, they could probably lend themselves well to uh, to a picture these days. But I think that I mean, I've, especially um, what was the, what was the name of the not Blade. The, the, was it Sarad or something like that? There's Sarad. Uh, Blade, Sarad, and there's um, Crag. Karg. Oh, Karg. Karg. Now, Karg. Whose makeup is horrific. Yeah. As a kid, watching Karg used to scare the shit out of me as a kid. Yeah. Karg, Karg was good, but um, Sarad, the, the the effect that his neck puffing out and stuff like that, that was really well achieved for that for that uh, that era. Um, and so, you know, there's no disappointment there because there was they were so well, well done. And... Um, Alan, what's the name of the guy that plays uh, Blade? Oh, I don't. I know. I I can't think of it, but I know he was he was the 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 sword instructor at scene, and he is actually the 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 double the body double for Skeletor in all the fight scenes. Um, but I I I can't think of his name off the top of my head. That's why I was going to mention him because he's the guy that's fighting with Dolph at the uh, the end of the picture, um, and he's really good. The fight scenes between uh, him and Dolph are really really spectacular i think they don't go on long enough in, in fact in my opinion i think they could have uh, labored on that a bit more i think there's a lot more um, fun and games to be had with that action can i just give a, a special shout out to james tolkien who is a fixture of so many beloved 80s movies and i actually think this might be my favorite james tolkien performance because for most of it he's the same kind of stoic kind of uh, irascible you know, hard ass that he was in Back to the Future and Top Gun. But then as the movie goes on, he kind of lightens up and he's just having the time of his life. And then eventually he retires to Eternia. I think he's great in this. I really love him. You remember when I said how this this couldn't be a more righteous film, that having him at the center of it just kind of really kind of tips it over. Because uh, my favorite, uh, the, the biggest laugh in the entire picture, I remember uh, seeing this in the cinema, was when uh, he's... Um, Skeletor's troops are fleeing and he pops up from behind the car and he says hold it right there and, he, and they shoot and the, and the entire car just explodes and then he gets up and he's all frazzled and he says holy shit we're gonna need some backup <laughs> everybody blew up there that was that was fabulous I love I love the bit where he's on attorney he's like oh why would I leave here there's there's clean air and you're like clean air really the attorney doesn't strike me as somewhere that you know well maybe before Skeletor invaded but like it, it's this really dark kind of smoky place. I would have thought there was, I don't know. Yeah, but the impression I always got was like, like I don't think we really see Eternia. Like Eternia is like there's meant to be a city and there's meant to be like, you know, this whole civilization. And, and, and Castle Grayskull is meant to be kind of out in this barren, even in the cartoon and the comics, it's out in this barren kind of landscape. Um but yeah, you'd wonder why he'd want to. If, if if attorney is just like you know those that rocky area, why would you want to stay there? We haven't we haven't really mentioned Courtney Cox yet. Courtney Cox in her first her first uh, film. Um, I think she was only really famous at this point for the for the Bruce Springsteen uh, music videos. Um, 
I think that's I think that's what she was known for. This was definitely her, her film debut. What did you think of Courtney Cox, Monica Geller herself? I thought she was fabulous. I think both of them actually. I mean, I remember like uh, again, first first time in the cinema where um, uh, Rob, you call him Tom Paris, which is very nineties, obvious. But uh, <laughs> the the actor Robert Duncan McNeil, with complete with his uh, with that hairdo, uh, when he gets knocked around. When uh, the the baddies turn up at at his place and and give him a right going over and he's bleeding out in his face, that was pretty heavy going for a PG at the time. Mm, yeah, you know because it, I mean Beastman really you know gives him a, a, a decent slap, doesn't he? And um, and when they when they turn up and they put the color of truth on him, or is that what it's called? Oh, the yeah. color of truth. Yeah, Remember yeah. that? And uh, you know they and and again when. Um, uh, when Courtney gets that, uh, when Skeletor does that laser bolt thing on her leg, and that, I mean, the makeup there—that's pretty grim too. Um, it is so, you know, they they weren't um, they weren't afraid to uh, take a few risks when it came to, um, you know, uh, throwing it at the audience. So that's kind of it's one of the kind of reasons that I, I think it separates it from your. It, it brought it right more into the territory of, of something like Dark Crystal and something where it, you know, it, like. The, the, the future fantasy can be pretty grim. You know, mm. this is a light touch subject that we're talking about, you know, it's based on light touch kind of stuff. But, you know, Skeletor's not playing it for laughs. Evil Lynn's not playing it for laughs. There's some nastiness in it. And when people get beat up, they really get beat up. So there was a thread of realism as well. as all the... they, they kind of didn't need that in the movie, the whole thing that her parents are dead and then they go back in time and save them at the end. I remember, I remember as a kid being a little bit kind of that used to bum me out, man. There's so much of the film is just dedicated to the fact that you know they die, they die in a plane crash, I think, and she's guilty about it, and she's breaking, she's she's leaving the town and breaking up with. Uh, but with they, Kevin. They, they can have all that stuff about her leaving the town, and you know, yeah. oh, maybe I need to break up with Kevin. But the stuff with her parents being dead was kind of neither here nor there. It's a different movie. It, it comes, it comes back in a weird way. Then later on, when Evelyn kind of t- takes, you know, the shape of her mother to get the cosmic key back, uh, the the actress who plays her mother actually Chris Pine's mother in real life. That was the only scene that didn't didn't click for me because she's too smart for that. I think I think Cody's character is just too. I mean, everything she's seen by that point. You know, the fact that, you know, that that the school burnt down, she's been chased by all these monsters and then this, this, this god turns up to save her and all that kind of stuff. So to have to right in the middle of that, have a mum just show up out of nowhere and her, for her to believe it, I was just like, no, 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 no. The, I like the Gwildor character played by the famous uh, Billy Barty. He's the kind of the engineer who comes up with the cosmic key. Uh, Billy Barty famously was in another uh, kind of fantasy film that year uh, he was in willow uh, if i remember that was 1987 i think as well he was one of the one of the the, the head sorcerer in uh, the head sorcerer in, in willow as well but he was a, he was a good supplement for orco i thought i uh, i didn't find him. he provided a lot of the comic relief and stuff i thought that was i thought he was really good and i think he was like 73 or 74 years of age at the time yeah that's true you, i'm glad you mentioned willow that was the that was kind of the last one before the genre died out completely, Willow was the, was the last, um, and that didn't do as well as expected, did it? And I think that took the, the genre with it, actually. But um, yeah, he was um, he was kind of the, uh, he drove the plot forward, didn't he? Because it was his invention, the cosmic key. And uh, obviously it doesn't, uh, the cosmic key isn't so advanced that it, that it, uh, that it stores any kind of, <laughs> any, any, any preloaded tones, otherwise it would have been a pretty short picture, wouldn't it? But it's got a handy black clip at the top that goes around with the strap. Did you notice that as well? <laughs> I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. 
It looks like something from a school yeah, bag. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the the prop was an absolute nightmare. But it is it's spellbinding, isn't it? It's uh, again so completely utterly eighties, beggars belief. But uh, yeah, so that, that... It, it it looks like every time I see it, I think that those are spoons attached to the side of it. But they're, they're they look not. like they're tuning forks. Yeah, tuning they're kind forks, of like yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's such a it's such a great pop, and you know Kevin uh, mistakes it for some kind of a Japanese synthesizer because you know all the best stuff is made in Japan, as we all know, uh, back in the eighties. But yeah, I I another, just think another it's... Back to the Future lift there, <laughs> um, and there's obviously a connection with uh, uh, Courtney Cox. And Christina Pickles, obviously Christina Pickles, who plays the sorceress, plays uh, Monica's mother in Friends as well. I thought she did a great job. She's kind of the the de facto. Like there's no King Randor, there's no Queen, there's no royal family here that to speak of. She seems like the kind of de facto kind of guardian of Eternia in the film is kind of how it's she's kind of all those characters in one, I think. Yeah, I think that it took a great risk of being overstuffed. Um yeah. if there was if you introduced any more elements to it than what was there. Um incidentally, it would be interesting to see what you do with Prince Adam now, because I think you'd probably be better off using technology like they did for the first Captain America where they took uh, Chris Evans and they they whipped him for the first hour and then built him for the second. You could do something like that now because otherwise the, the whole Clark Kent, Prince Adam dynamic is, is ridiculous because there's no no sense of a disguise whatsoever, which is what threw me they in the car. They did something like that in Black Adam as well, I believe. I haven't seen Black Adam, but I, I understand that there is some kind of a de-rockifying effect used at some stage when he says Shazam he reverts back into whatever form he was before he became Black Adam. And he's basically the rock's head on like a skinny man's body, I think. If it doesn't have a name, this process that we're talking about now, I think de-rockifying should be what it's called going forward. <laughs> I have to say, I'm not like, again, I've seen an episode of Masters of the Universe. It does strike me as strange that they didn't retain that element. Because if you're if you're trying to hook you know, an audience of 12-year-olds, give them the fantasy that by saying a magic word or a magic phrase, you can turn into Dolph Lundgren. And the, the easy move would have been have Tom Paris turn into He-Man. And maybe in this version, you know, Prince Adam is just a, you know, an everyday keyboard player from Earth. And he has to embrace his destiny as the king of attorney or whatever. And he becomes Dolph Lundgren. I don't know. That's That's just my idea. But... It did strike me as odd that they that they didn't use that. I I, I know I I watched the uh, the toys that made us, and I know there there was something of a mythology already before they even did the cartoon. They were drawing more from that supposedly, but I don't know if they were doing it now. I feel like they'd have to do the Prince Adam stuff, wouldn't they? And that that kind of leads into the only thing that really disappointed me, even as a kid with with, with the film, is I loved the the kind of power sword. Yes mythology of the power sword and how the power sword worked i mean in the in the original comics the 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 concept was is that it was two swords they were both half of a sword so he-man had half and skeletor had half and if you joined the two swords together they acted as a key so that you could get into Castle Grayskull. Sorry. And it was Some a great real thing. real homoerotic imagery going on there, Adam. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> um, and it worked with the toy. If you had, if you got He-Man, you got Skeletor, you could put the swords together <laughs> and you could unlock Castle Grayskull, the, 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 the original toy That's and amazing. the Origins version as well. Um, but the, the whole power sword concept doesn't really play any, there's not really much significance to the sword in the film. At the very end, we do get a scene where, which is one of my favorite scenes, where he is battling his way kind of 
you know he's hurt he's been whipped senseless uh, to get back to the homoerotic stuff he's been whipped he's 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 in pain uh, uh, Skeletor is powered up he's got his gold armor on and he's shooting his he, his powers seem to be pretty much exactly the same as they were <laughs> when he was regular Skeletor except the, the lightning is a different color um, but yeah, and he, he gets to the and I love that he gets to the to the altar beside uh, Skeletor's throne and he, he grabs the sword and Skeletor is shooting him with the lasers and he kind of the first one he kind of grabs it and he takes his hand away because obviously he's in pain and then he grabs it a second time and he lifts it up and he says the words <laughs> That that is a great moment. I have to say, I remember watching it the first time, going, "Yeah!" Like they they really milked that. I wonder. I wonder was that take one, two, or three for Dolph when they they used switch line? And it's awesome, and light shoots out of it, and it's amazing, yes. and it's it's cool. But I never really understood the meaning of that. Like, is he weak, yeah. and then that stops? Like, does that heal his wounds, and suddenly he's back to a hundred percent again? Is it just a cool thing to say when you lift up your sword? Even as a kid, I was like, I don't understand what the significance of that is in terms of the film. I think that I think in terms of the film, I think that uh, the he he channels the power through it. I think that's its purpose ultimately. I think I think the power comes through it, just like when the because it, isn't it the the apex eye or something that the and the moons have to be in alignment or something like that in order for the for Skeletor to for the the great eye opens. That's it, and then Skeletor inherits the power. So I think that. Uh, He-Man's version of that is to channel it through the sword. That's just the impression that I got from watching the picture anyway, just to... Uh... Like, and like you said earlier on, Martin, when they fight, it doesn't, you know, you don't feel like you're being shortchanged, I don't think. No, no, it's just, it, it's, it looks like a, a stylistic uh, consideration. But when, the, when He-Man breaks Skeletor's staff, mm. he is no longer channeling that power. That's what snaps it in the end. So it, it would seem to hold water that that, that theory about... Uh, the accoutrements is correct. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's a great scene. Uh, it's just backlit, isn't it? That's all it yeah. is. It's just it's just backlit, and they're and uh, and they're getting stuck in. It is um, it's fabulous. I think I wouldn't be without it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a depowered Skeletor then just can't let it go. He's down on his knee, and uh, you know, uh, He Man kind of shows him mercy, and he he reaches in and he takes out the sword, his his own personal sword, to take He Man down, and he he dies Emperor Palpatine style, or so we think. Oh, so we think, yes, because pre predating Marvel by decades, there is, as you mentioned, a post, know, a post there, there is a post credit scene. scene, and I it was a, I had seen the film countless times, and I remember watching it. A memory I have, I remember watching it. I think it was my birthday one night, and we the film was over, and we just got up from the the couch. So for me, my cousin, and we went out, and we were having birthday cake with the family or whatever. And next thing. My, my another cousin came running out of the room going uh skeletor pops up at the end of the movie when the credits are done and i was like no he doesn't and he's like yeah he does he, he he pops up at the end of the movie so we ran in and we had to rewind it from the from the from the end to to, to watch the credits to see skeletor pop up at the end and he just rises up out of the water and very quickly says i'll be back yep but he never didn't was. see didn't see it first time around didn't see it at the cinema didn't wait that long i only saw it years later on videotape when i left it running just like you and after the end credits i was sat there and uh, he pops up and he made me jump <laughs> i remember i remember going whoa whoa oh oh god he's there oh he's back okay <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. It is. It's creepy. It is. It is very creepy, and it's cool. And nobody stayed. To, I don't think there was. I don't remember any other post-credit scenes in, in films back then. Maybe I'm. You know, people are probably messages now and say, "What are you talking about?" But I, I don't remember anything like that. No, I can't come to think of it. No, the, and then I just spent twenty-five years waiting for the sequel. Like, when's yeah, it coming out? When's he? When's he coming back? And he, there was he never came back. See, that's interesting because he, again, seeing it first time round and uh, and. To all intents and purposes, just like everything else, just like Superman and everything else back in the day, everything was a success. We didn't uh, gauge things in terms of how much money they made. It was how entertaining they were. Um, and so, uh, but with with Masters, it was it was interesting because I don't think anybody was expecting a sequel out of that, especially uh, I didn't. I thought, well, that's a, that's a good story, well told. Um, I could see where they go with it, but uh, I don't get a sense of them doing a whole bunch of uh, follow-ups with this at all. It was, too, it was too much like the. It was too kind of um, uh, engrossed in that fantasy genre where you didn't get sequels. There was never a crawl to. Um, Willow was only just picked up again, but um, you know, never another Dragon Slayer. There was never because so it was kind of like, you know, what you saw was what you get. Yeah, one and done. I wonder if if they had made a sequel, would you have wanted Courtney Cox and? Robert Duncan McNeil to come back or would it be new Earth characters and then the, the central Eternia cast centering around new characters? No, their story was t- absolutely told. So I don't think there's any uh, real any need to have them back. It would have been interesting to see them pop up, I suppose, as you know, towards the end or something. But no, that wouldn't have served any purpose story-wise, I don't think. I don't even think I would have had Skeletor back. I think maybe something like a Hordak character or something like that. Hordak was the, was the villain from the She-Ra series. Um, that would have been interesting. Get the evil horde involved, yeah, because there were some really good um, characters in that. That was a great element of the mythology to the cartoons. You know, the fact that we find out that you know Skeletor used to work with this guy Hordak, and he kidnaps uh, Adam's twin sister and brings brings her to another dimension and raises her as this kind of evil foot soldier of his own. And then Heman has to go to to Etheria, I think the name of the planet is to give her her power sword and tell her who she is. And oh, I love that um, Secret of the Sword animated movie. If anybody, um, it's dated as fuck now, but if, if anybody wants to go back and watch it, it's so much fun. Is, is is that like a step up from the cartoon the same way Transformers the movie was a step up or, or is it more along the same lines? What they did was after the 65, I think it was circa 65 episodes of uh, He-Man, of Masters of the Universe, they created a new show, uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. And it was meant to be He-Man for girls, basically. Um, and to start that off, uh, they had this they had this um, this crossover, uh, like the pilot, the unofficial pilot for She-Ra was this movie that was released in theaters called uh, He-Man and She-Ra and the Secret of the Sword. Um, so you can, like I have it on DVD, um, uh, but it, it also serves as kind of the first two episodes of the Shira series, and I think they ran simultaneously for a little while. They did a Christmas special, uh, which ended He-Man. He-Man ended with the Christmas special. He'd still feature in a couple of episodes of Shira as it went on, but it didn't really take off in the way that they had hoped. Uh, kids had kind of started to move on from that. Boys didn't really take to it they didn't really want to kind of be playing with like the toys were more doll focused and stuff it didn't really do what they wanted it to do um but it was it was just as good and the the evil horde element of it and the great characters like shadow weaver and stuff great villains as well and it it was a great series and we easily could have seen the horde and she-ra that whole story as a sequel to if i was doing a sequel myself would have been he-man traveling to etheria 
to find his sister, basically. I feel like we're setting up the whole uh, Masters of the Universe cinematic universe here. Masters of the cinematic universe. <laughs> I'd go with that. That's quite strong as uh, as plot-wise. I think that would be really interesting to see, especially now. Things you could do with it now. Wow. And uh, you can, for anybody who's interested in The Secret of the Sword, you can watch that for free on YouTube anytime you want. It's it's there and the Christmas special is there as well. Rob, even I'd say you, you might like it. it, it it's, it's quite good. Um, I just wanted to talk about Pig Boy. Oh yes. Oh, okay. So Pig Boy was uh was a competition winner. I think uh, quite late in the game, I think that uh was Mattel um ran a competition to uh guest in the film and I think he was uh, he was ushered in very very last minute because I think they kind of forgotten that this this was kind of obligatory and it had to happen. Um, and so they they dressed this poor kid, I can't remember his name, and um, they dressed him up as this character called Pig Boy. Uh, and he's a uh, fella by the name of Richard Zbonder. Oh, that's him. Zbonder. That's him. And he's I in, think uh, he's going to Comic Cons and stuff. I think he's. He? Uh, yeah, I think he is. I think he's well, going to Comic Cons and stuff. Why not? Because it's every kid's dream in the 80s. You're going to be why in a Hema. Imagine being in school and telling all your mates oh. that you're going to be in Masters of the Universe 1987. And then they're like, where are you? And you're wearing a pig mask. And they're like that's and you're, not you you're holding Skeletor's Havoc staff and he takes it off you as he's walking up and to be fair he's got a credit he's in the credits he's the last actor named in the credits how cool is that yeah but well, what kid on the playground is waiting for credits they want to see the face <laughs> on the screen <laughs> oh, I think it's... I don't believe you Richard Sponder you're not in Masters of the Universe <laughs> at all that's what they'd say um, is there anything else you want to talk about Rob in terms of Masters of the Universe 1987 uh, the the bit where they're eating the chicken, it, it it just always just something weirdly unsettling about however they're eating the chicken. I don't know. And then they refer to it as white sticks. And then it 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 does it it does feel like kind of a vegetarian movie in that sense. It's almost like it's calling people out for how bar- barbarian eating meat actually is. Um, I always thought that was strange though because it's like this barbarian planet like she doesn't yeah. understand that sometimes people eat animals and stuff like Eternia should be this kind of like dangerous place where there's like flying dragons and you know maybe you it's know, like Star Wars and, and like, they've got those kind of food synthesizers or whatever they call or like the replicators in Star Trek yeah it's it's it which is all true except for the fact that man at arms who's very comfortable with the fact that he's stuffing an animal and he's clearly done it several times before so either either tila doesn't get out much or um uh old man at arms has been involved in a in a lot more uh he's, he's, you get that impression from him anyway i think it's john, it's john cypher plays him doesn't he he he's really good in, in it i think he's another one that's not uh especially um the scene where he, he takes mm. off the collar and that kind of stuff, this Skeletor's uh, particular gift, this kind of stuff. He, he he does come off as somebody that has been kind of mm. right by He-Man's side throughout all of these these historic battles that have been going on this whole time. He's, 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 he really does come off like he's been there for all of them. It is it credit. is weird, though, when He-Man has given him orders. And, you know, not only is He-Man a good 15 years younger than this man, it's Dolph Lundgren, and he just doesn't have the commanding presence to talk to this man, who's a much better actor. But it's fun. I just, I just like one of my favorite things about this is that, you know, fair enough. They they kind of ripped off Star Wars, and there's there's bits of Superman in there as well. You could argue that you know coming from the fantasy planet and bringing the adventure to Earth is is Superman like. But then you know, for budgetary reasons, they also had the good sense to kind of rip off American Graffiti as well. I just think that's amazing, and 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 a bit of Back to the Future in there as well with the parents at the end of the movie. It's kind of Back to the Future vibes. 
um so yeah it's it's just it's just like a, a blender of everything that was popular in the 80s and then some with those opening credits not only is the bill conti score so much like superman now i can always you know i can always i can hum one and then hum the other no problem at all like i i know the differences between the two but even just the visuals of the credits you know you've got the stars and you've got the delights and you've got the font yeah 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 i really like that yeah like, you know i i just think it's so i i i like it is a bit of a rip-off there's no doubt about it but i would highly recommend it is a great film soundtrack it's been released a couple of times think lala land released it a few years ago as well and there's some grace there's a there, what i can't think yeah. of the name of the track i think it's battle at the gym or something there's a great track there um, which covers the, the fight at the gym with Courtney Cox and, and Karg and them chasing her and stuff and He-Man fighting, fighting those guys. Yeah. It, it really is. Uh, it is. I, th- I think it's a bit underrated. I, it, it often gets kind of referred to as a rip-off of Superman and Star Wars and stuff, but I think there's some really yeah. good stuff in, in that soundtrack. I mean, it's clearly trying to be a John Williams score, and it sounds very different from all the kind of, you know, synthesizer-type scores that Bill Conti did. So it's interesting in that sense. But, you know, going back to something you were saying earlier on about Skeletor's... Um, costume and and how this was the star wars of the 80s like th- that opening scene where skeletor's walking into the throne room and he's surrounded by all the the bootleg darth vader's and bill conta's got that music and it's like dan and it sounds like it, it sounds like a it sounds like a typical kind of bridging theme that you get in like a, a scene in the empire in star wars or something like that and you don't even see skeletor's face so if you just flicked this on of a Saturday, you might even think, oh, well, that's Emperor Palpatine and this is Return of the Jedi or something. Yeah. You know? And I love how that scene is shot. Like you said there, Rob, you don't see his face. The camera kind of follows him. And I, I always remember how he kind of, he, he, the Havoc staff kind of goes out in front of him really powerful and he kind of puts it behind him as he's walking and it's just this yeah, power to Yeah, and it dongs him. every single time. Every, yeah. He's banging it on the ground. It's like, dong, dong, yeah. the whole way up. Which is pretty cool. I never noticed that until this view. Yeah, he's intimidating, man. You know, the, 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 like we said, I, I can't, I can't overemphasize how great the costume is, the, the makeup. It could have been really bad. And they did a really great job with it. I think, I think a lot of the problems with the film are, you know, despite all their great efforts, I think really the faults lie in the earth stuff. I think people were just so disappointed with the fact that he, they go to earth at the time because I think a lot of the other stuff is really really solid I think almost everything in Eternia is really really solid in Castle Grayskull I think the casting is really solid obviously there's issues with Dolph Lundgren I think you know in, in terms of like the monologues the script in, 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 in those in that way is very strong um, they treated it they could have they, they treat it seriously um, throughout you know there's a little bit of comic relief but they don't take the piss they're not kind of winking at the audience saying look this is a load of shit just you know watch it anyway like they they, they treat it with respect they treat the mythology with respect and I think it was just audiences at the time were really disappointed that it ended up being kind of 50% a movie about a girl who lost her parents in a plane crash yeah and like to, to the I totally agree actually um, to, to your point on the earth stuff I feel like if if there had been impressive sequences in interesting locations, like if, if there'd been, you know, a fight in the city streets like Superman 2 or something yeah. like that, or instead of just, you know, a fight in a music shop and a high school gym and, you know, stealing chicken from cars. Originally, it was meant to be shot in Iceland, I think. I think I read before that it was, it was meant to be shot in Iceland, uh, except for the budgetary issues. That's like they had scouted locations in Iceland and they had kind of backdrops and stuff. And I know that the final battle on the, on the um, Castle Grayskull set, that was a two-floor set and that was meant to be an epic sword fight at the end where they were kind of utilizing the two floors and stuff. Um, so, you know, 
if if it was just managed a little bit better we probably would have got that i i was really excited to talk about this i'm, I'm glad that you know you guys have so much uh kind of fondness and nostalgia for it so it was really interesting hearing a lot of what you guys had to say i i, I kind of treat this as like a stealth superman movie in a way because you know you have the the new gods connections there that this is the closest we'll ever get to seeing what a, a dark side type character might have been like in a christopher reeve sequel in the 80s so i'm really i'm really fond of it for for that reason um it, it's one of a, of a handful of what i consider to be stealth superman movies along with uh, obviously supergirl and santa claus the mute the movie if if you all stay tuned we're, we'll definitely do an episode about that soon uh, but yeah no I, I i think it's a bunch of fun and like i was saying before it's just like the ultimate you know 80s fantasy kind of bargain bin b movie type thing and, and and i love it for that and i was surprised by how watchable and genuinely enjoyable it is like there is stuff to kind of laugh at but for the most part it, it like it's it is a very charming movie and i i don't think it deserves maybe quite as much of the the the, the, the kind of drubbing it gets and, and for me like i i think i mentioned this to you before alan flash gordon is a beloved movie and i feel like flash gordon is as good as this or maybe this is even slightly better in some ways like i i i don't know how you guys feel about that like well they're they're very different they're very different movies but i yeah i know what you flash gordon has has garnered this kind of cult following and then this has kind of largely been forgotten to people who weren't there at the time um i think martin what do you what, what do you think well, uh, as an ambassador for Flash Gordon as well, I mean that's a it's a it's a cracking point you make. Um, and yes, uh, there's a there's an inherent um, Europeanness about Flash Gordon. I think there's got there's got a long way to kind of. Um, I mean, it's beloved here. It's not beloved in the US by any any stretch. I don't think it's 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 become that way after 30 40 years but from the from the outset in the uk flash gordon was beloved yeah the, i think the fact that we're sat here talking about masters all these years later is pretty much a testimony to how much fun it was but i don't think it was much it was any more than that i think the 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 kind of i think i think what um what most uh real or, or genuine masters fans it kind of it's it's a it's an interesting footnote to uh to to that that whole kind of movement if you like what that mattel um publicized and the fact that um you know to this day you can still watch it and and take and and enjoy it because and it was just enjoyable that's all it was i think it, it they had a brief to fill and it was it could have been dire it could have been unwatchable but uh, the fact is, for a toy commercial, they didn't have to do much of anything. And they still went ahead and did something innovative that we're talking about today. So if that's not a testimony to its longevity, I don't know what is, really. Um, Flash Gordon is another in a topic that you, we three need to discuss at some point, because that, that's, a, that's a corker, that one. And, and and for anybody who wants to check it out, you can you can get it handily enough on DVD. You can get it on Blu-ray. It's available. Um, not the best quality, but you can watch the entire film on YouTube at the moment. I don't know how long you'll be able to do that for, um, but it is available there too. So yeah, highly, I highly recommend you check it out. Masters of the Universe. I have the power. Oh, and I wanted to mention, I, I said this to Rob earlier on, I am waiting, still waiting, Factory Entertainment announced a one-to-one scale replica of the power sword from masters of the universe from the uh, uh, filmation version which i ordered 
two and a half two and a half years ago maybe almost three years ago um and i've i've been if i got an email there the other day to say that uh the wait is almost over that'll be arriving in my local one of my local comic books uh shops a big bang uh comics in dublin and dundrum were good enough to order it in for me so i cannot wait to pick up that it is one i i've always wanted the power sword i've always wanted the sword of omens and those were the two big swords uh, back in my day. So I'm I'm really I'm really looking forward to, to seeing this thing. I know Pixel Dan on YouTube. If anybody follows Pixel Dan, he did a review of it about a year and a half ago, and it just looked absolutely awesome. And it's it's full steel, leather grip, proper proper setup. So I cannot wait to get that. Um, before we before we go, Martin, just one more thing. The last time you were on the podcast, did you think that we would be getting a 4K release of Superman Four: The Quest for Peace? Well, <laughs> don't you just love it when stuff comes up that you're just like, oh, okay, didn't see that coming. It wasn't exactly the announcement I was hoping for in terms of content. But you know what? Any kind of announcement with any kind of content is a good announcement. And so I'm really intrigued by what's going to happen with this, because as we know, we've had a release of the 4K of Superman the movie already, which kind of was disappointing on, on, on many levels. Um, I'm assured in this instance that that has been revisited and uh, any any issues that existed with that particular release have been eradicated. And so what we're going to be having is uh, the best versions of all the films to date. Um, and that's great in and of itself. That's, that's wonderful. Um, hopefully that doesn't kind of curtail any chance of Warner Archive... Uh, getting hold of any um, extended releases. I mean, you know, like they did with the uh, the TV version of Superman the movie, which is still, I think, the greatest Blu-ray release I've ever encountered. I think it's fantastic. It's so amazing that that exists. It's unbelievable. The fact that that exists at all. It's, it's the biggest source of hope, yeah. The fact that it exists at all gives me great hope for, uh, for um, what might be to come. But while we're here, boys, I'm going to give you a bit of an exclusive. Um Ooh. Yes, it's not directly. <laughs> that's, that's my uh, Gus Gorman there. <laughs> so, Super Events UK, uh, the new uh, association with, with between me, Alexi Lambistiel, and uh, and Andy, Andy Hanton. Um, we did one event uh, last year for Superman Three, which was a very the best s- film of all time. Yeah, the best film of all time. Uh, we <laughs> did a, we did a screening uh, in Nottingham in this fabulous cinema. Uh, followed by a little get-together of like-minded fans. It's a small event, but importantly, it was a free event. And it was a wonderful, wonderful day. And based on that, we're going to go further. And this year, uh, we're thinking, we haven't got a date confirmed, but we're thinking around June, uh, we are going to do Superman 4, except the Superman 4 is going to be Superman 4 weekend. There's going to be a couple of special guests as well that we haven't yet confirmed, but we're hoping we'll we'll show on the day. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be... where do people, if people are interested in attending, Martin, where do they go or what do they do? So Super Events uh, is on Facebook, Super Events UK. Look for us on Facebook. The announcement proper uh, will follow and um, we'll finalise the date. And again, it's going to be a free event. So, you know, there's no reason not to show. Um, you come come the summer, come to the event, come to Superman 4 weekend and you will not regret it, is all I can say. Excellent. Um, Rob, is there anything before we finish up? No, uh, that that all sounds amazing, Martin. Definitely try and make it to that event, and and if you can, try and go to Milton Keynes. It's 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 an amazing place, the home of Superman Four.
those socials again folks all star superfan on facebook and instagram at all star superpod on twitter and at all star superpod at gmail.com if you would like to send us an email or a voice note and we will feature it in the next metropolis mailbag segment um martin it's been fantastic having you back on again uh good journey sir good journey <laughs> god bless you both it's been fun excellent we can't wait you'll have to come back you will come back won't you of course try and stop me excellent excellent uh everybody stay safe stay super and take care bye bye <laughs>